Well, good morning. Welcome again to Odyssey Bible. Glad you're here today. And uh, today we're, we're taking off. We're, we're still in the midst of, of a, a series through the books of Ezra and Haggai. And we're kind of looking at it from a pretty high level. We're not getting uh, crazy deep into the text. We're, we're, we're moving pretty through it pretty quickly. And we're looking at the heroic faith of God's people in Ezra and in Haggai throughout this whole series. We could actually take it all the way through Nehemiah and Zechariah and some other, uh, some other Old Testament books if we wanted to. But we're just going for, for six weeks. And uh, today we're going to wrap up the book of Ezra. But hey, before we do, uh, as you know, we're uh, in the midst of uh, a journey together called the 30 for 30 journey, where we're praying, we're seeking the Lord. Uh, we're looking at a, at a coming uh, project to, to renovate and add on to our facility. And uh, the, the commitment phase of that in terms of giving is coming next month. And uh, if you want to know more information about that, there's a couple options for you. Uh, number one, over the next two weeks, um, somebody's going to be visiting every small group. So if you're a small group leader, a 110 leader, would you please uh, just invite that whoever that is that calls you and say, yeah, come and, and we want to answer questions. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're just there to answer questions. Remember when we joined uh, the Evangelical Free Church, how we did the same thing? We came to every small group and tried to answer questions of what does that mean? And it's the, it's the same thing. We're just coming to answer questions. The second thing, there's going to be an opportunity a couple Saturdays. It's in your bulletin, but 9 a.m. Uh, over in the fellowship hall. And we're just going to have coffee and donuts and do the same thing. So if you're not in a 110 group or another question comes up and you would, you'd like an answer to it, why don't you come and join us on one of those mornings, on Saturday mornings? And, um, yeah, I just wanted to let you know about that. And then also really invite you to be here on Sunday, April 2nd. Sunday, April 2nd, when you walk in, you're going to come in the front doors and you're going to be met with well, I was going to say breakfast, but really brunch. But I call it breakfast because that's uh, brunch. I mean, that's all you eat, right? Is the breakfast food. That's the best part. So you're going to come in and, and there's going to be a, a lineup of food and you can grab some food and head over to the fellowship hall. But you got to come early that day at 930. We're going to get started and uh, we won't actually start the service till the normal time. But we're going to actually have the whole service in the fellowship hall that morning. And uh, we're going to be crammed in there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so really hope, if you're not taking off for spring break, that you're here on April 2nd. It's going to be a great morning. So looking forward to that. But just a reminder, if you have questions, um, those are a couple opportunities for you to get those answered. But back to today and uh, the text in Ezra. Let me give you a little background in case maybe you haven't been with us. Get you caught up to speed. What's happening? God's people... Uh, at the beginning of the book of Ezra, are in exile. They're in modern-day Iraq, or in the text it's called Babylon. And the reason they're there is because of their sin. They've turned from the Lord. They've, they've chose to sin, so they've chose to suffer. And uh, because of that, God takes them into exile. He, he allows a foreign land to come in, conquer them, and take them away. Well, you fast forward 70 years, and uh, God had made a promise that even after they went to Jerusalem, the Babylonians, and they destroyed the temple, that he would send a remnant back uh, to rebuild the temple. And so in the beginning of Ezra, we see a group of, of about forty to 50,000 people return to, to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, it takes them about 20 years, and they face a lot of opposition in it, but they do it. And then last week we saw you fast forward another few generations, another 60 years after the temple was completed, 80 years after that first time the big group went back to Israel. And uh, a new king is over all the people. His name's Artaxerxes, and he sends a guy by the name of Ezra back 
with more people. And their intent this time is to go not rebuild the temple, but beautify the temple. I said last week just to make it look pretty. I mean, that's the easiest way to think about it. They're going to remodel it. They're going to, they're going to freshen it up and, and to the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and, and also with materials and supplies to help them in their worship. And uh, after this, we ended last week, and it was kind of a high point. They had done all this. They had all the, they had all the money, and uh, they, they renovated the temple. And now we get to Ezra chapter 9 and 10. And if you read ahead, you found out the book of Ezra doesn't exactly end on a high note. It's a bit of a tragedy. Because as we come to Ezra chapter 9, what's happened is all these people who saw God provide for them in incredible ways... In a long journey back to Israel, in multiple kings providing for their journey and and to renovate and build the temple. Now we see these people, um, after God frees them from slavery, they turn on him. They ignore, really, they just ignore him, which is the same thing. And they ignore the Lord. And so that's where we're going to be at today, is in uh, Ezra chapter 9. Before we get there, though, let me pray. And then uh, we'll dive into the text together. Let's, let, let, let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you uh, for your grace to us through him. And uh, Lord, I pray this morning that as we see uh, your people turn from you in their sin, um, the Holy Spirit, you might reveal to us how we've turned from you. Because we do. I do. And as we see them repent... Might you prick our hearts and turn us and lead us in your kindness and in your grace to repentance. Lord, thank you for Jesus because we are absolutely hopeless apart from him. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd speak to and through me this morning. And uh, that you would, uh, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects, that you would keep him from from distracting us or uh, telling us lies. And Lord, teach us the truth this morning. We might turn in repentance to you. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, before we get going, um, I wanted to show you this picture. This was my son yesterday before the basketball game. <laughs> and uh, if you guys don't know, I, went to, I grew up in Iowa. I went to Iowa State. And uh, just so you know, before you gloat too much about Purdue's victory last night, uh, you need to know this is what your Boilermakers did to my son. That's how he looked afterwards. And maybe not just him, maybe his dad too. But anyway, I thought you might appreciate that. But hey, let's dive into Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra writes this. He says, uh, after these things had been done. So what things? Well, the, the, um, the building of the temple, the renovating of the temple, all the people journeying back. Uh, the consecration of all those things, worship. After all these things had happened, uh, the officials approached me. And they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race has now mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As we start the book of Ezra, what we see is that God's God's people have become faithless. 
They've become faithless. We talked about all the faith it would have taken them to journey uh, hundreds of miles over five months on foot and on camel to go from Babylon back to the promised land. And all the faith it would have taken, because it says, uh, Ezra, remember Ezra fasted and prayed for three days before they even took off. And, and on their journey, God protected them from ambushes and from the enemies along the trade route. And he brought them there safely. And then all these things had happened. And even after seeing God provide in so many ways, now we find out in this faithful, faithlessness, this faithlessness, What is faith? It's believing God's word and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, right? Because God promises a good result. Well, so what does that tell you? Then these people, they didn't believe God's word, and they certainly didn't act upon it if they did. They were faithless. So let's review some of these charges from Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. They Ezra tells us they didn't separate themselves from the people of the land. They they married their daughters, uh, and by doing this, they were faithless. So Let's look at each one just a little bit. They didn't separate themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. See, the idea here isn't that God wanted his people to come back and live in a bubble and never interact with the people of the land. The idea was, it says, he didn't separate themselves not only from the peoples, but the peoples with what? With their abominations. It wasn't so much that they were going back into a land filled with people who didn't believe in the Lord God Almighty. It's that they went back to a group of people who worshipped other gods. And rather than just love those people and invite them to follow their God, they went out and started following the gods of, of, of those people in the land. They accepted the people with their abominations. See, see we're sent into the world, right? to love people and invite them to follow Jesus. We're we're sent. um, Jesus says we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. You're in the world. That means, guess what? You're going to rub shoulders with people in the world, and you ought to. Jesus sent you to. You shouldn't live in a bubble and just ignore people and, you know, in your holy little huddle and kind of us four, no more, right? No, 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 no. You're sent into the world, Jesus says, but you're not to be of it. You're to love people, but, also, but then to invite them, not, not you following their gods, but them following your God. And the people here didn't separate themselves from their abominations. Number two, it says they, they even went so far as to marry their daughters. Do you know this was the sin that actually caused all the people to end up in exile to begin with? Solomon. Remember Solomon? Solomon is the wisest man who ever lives. And he's king of Israel. And under Solomon's leadership, under his wisdom, Israel's borders are as big and as amazing as they've ever been in history. But sadly, Solomon, even in all his wisdom, his heart was drawn after other gods. And it was because of his relationships with women who worshipped other gods. 1 Kings 11, I'll read it to you. It says, now Solomon loved many foreign women. Uh, It goes on, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, and neither shall they with you. And here's why. For they will surely turn away your heart after their gods. See, see, listen, this isn't about interracial marriage. Interracial marriage is totally fine. Because in reality, in God's economy, there's one race, humanity, right? We all bear God's image. The, The issue here is interfaith. 
And have you, you can't be unequally yoked with somebody who, who hasn't trusted Jesus Christ. If you're looking to get married to someone and uh, you find out before you're married that they don't love Jesus and you do, uh, you need to put that away and pray that they would trust Jesus or else just lovingly let them go because it's going to end up in disaster for you. And I could tell story after story of people for whom that's the truth. See, and the reason is, is you start to, there's this tension and you start to draw your hearts after other gods. You know how yoke works, right? Well, if you have a yoke over two oxen pulling a cart, well, if one, one ox is either just really, really weak and one is really strong, the cart's just going to go in circles. Or if they're both just stubborn, it's just going to pull apart and you're going to get nowhere in a hurry. So not to be unequally yoked, Paul writes. Well, Solomon here, it tells us in 1 Kings chapter 11 that uh, he actually clung to these women in love. In fact, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon in First Kings 11, verse 11, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, which, by the way, were always for Solomon's good, not to hinder him, but for his good, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. And what happens is the people after this do this, and after a few hundred years, uh, the Lord, the Lord uh, takes the kingdom into exile in Babylon, and they're punished for their sins. He's very patient giving them opportunity after opportunity to repent, but they never do. And so now they've been brought back, and they're doing the same thing that actually put them in captivity. It's like um, you tell your kid, don't touch the stove, it's hot. (laughs) And they touch it, and they burn themselves. See, I told you it was going to be hot. And they know it's hot. And then the next day they do it again. And like, what are you What are you doing? See, that's what these people are doing. It's like the guy walking down a road who falls in a hole. I told you this story, right? He falls in a hole, and he falls in, and he's like, oh, man, I can't believe I I did that, and I messed up like that. And he climbs out, and the next day he's walking to work, and again, he he falls in that hole. The first time, it was like, I didn't even see it. But the second time, it's like, oh, doggone it, I remember that. I did that yesterday. Why did I do that again? The third day, he gets up, and he walks to work the same way, and he walks, and he sees the hole right before he falls in it, and he kind of steps around it. And, oh, thanks, Lord, I didn't fall in the hole. Right? But the third day, you know what he does? He goes to work a different way. <laughs> he avoids the temptation to begin with, so he doesn't even fall in the hole. See, that's, we're going to see in a moment that's repentance. But God's people, what happens here is they had, they had heard about this hole over and over, and they walked right into it. And they fell into it again. And the third thing it says, by doing all of this, they were faithless. And sadly, the greatest sin was among the leaders. Ezra goes on writing, verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment. Remember, Ezra is, um, is a scholar. He's an incredible leader. He knows God's word inside and out, we saw. He had set his heart uh, to study God's word and then to do it and then to teach it to others. So he had been teaching them the word. And it says, when, he heard that, when I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and from my beard and I sat appalled. 
to, to do all this, to tear his garments and to pull hair from his head and from his beard was, would have been common in the morning at a funeral. And Ezra, knowing God's word, knowing history, he realizes, hey, if this keeps up, uh, this is bad news for us. This is really bad news for us. He knew the effect of ongoing sin among God's people. He knew that over and over and over when God's people chose to sin, what were they choosing to do? To suffer. They were choosing it. He knew how God's people had sinned in the wilderness after being rescued from Egypt. And then because of their critical, negative, complaining, fault-finding, self-reliant, unwilling-to-follow attitude, they end up dying in the wilderness. And he's like, I'm seeing the same attitudes again. They're hearing God's word, but they're fooling themselves because they're not doing it. They, they, we got to repent. If we don't, we're going to die just like the people in the wilderness. And God is going to wait because God's not going to stop doing what he's going to do, right? He's still going to accomplish what he's up to. But he's like, Ezra knows that history tells him in God's word that, listen, if we're not going to be faithful, that's okay. God's still faithful, but he may wait for the next generation to do it. And guess who misses out then? We do. We miss out on the joy. And Ezra knows that's what's happening. So Ezra's sitting there appalled, uh, mourning as he would at a funeral, because he's afraid it might mean the death of God's people here. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let me ask you, do you tremble at the words of God? Do you tremble at them? Do you ever read a text and, uh, or you, you hear the word taught and like there's just this knife in your heart or in your stomach? And you go, that's, that's me. I need, I, I need the gospel. I need to repent. I, you ever have that? These people trembled at God's word. See, God's people had trembled at his word at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. But then uh, less than, only a few months later, they totally ignored it. <laughs> and when the spies came back, they rejected their account and they didn't believe God's word. And thankfully, God is always keeping a remnant of people who tremble at his word. And may we be a faithful people who tremble at his word. Well, those who trembled remained faithful, and they joined Ezra in prayer. In verse 5, at the evening sacrifice, Ezra says, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord. Uh, this would have been 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's the time of the evening sacrifice. And by the way, that's a cool study. If you ever want to go through the Old Testament and see all the stuff that happens at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Day of Atonement, the lambs are sacrificed at 3 in the afternoon, um, all kinds of stuff over and over and over. And guess who? Uh, Jesus dies on the cross. What time? 3 in the afternoon at the evening sacrifice. And, and Ezra here is mourning, and it says he, he fell upon his knees, spread out his hands to the Lord my God. And he, here's, here's what he says. You get to verse 6 now. We've seen the faithlessness of God's people, but now you're going to see that God is faithful. That God is faithful. Right? And in, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he says that uh, even uh, when we are faithless, he remains, what's the word? Faithful. He remains faithful. 
So here's what we're going to see. And by the way, this is a, this is a prayer from Ezra, and it's, it's a classic prayer in Scripture. And what's unique about it, though, is that it's a prayer almost entirely of confession and very little petition, if any. A lot of prayers, right? You, you, you pray, you, you praise the Lord, you confess your sin, and then you ask him for something. In this case, Ezra's just, he's so appalled at sin, all he does is confess. Saying, oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. When it says, uh, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. In other words, uh, Ezra is saying, Lord, <coughs> their sin is so great, I can't even look at you. I can't even look. And he blushes, is that idea, in, in, because of their sin. It's so awful, it's so vile before the Lord. See, a contrite heart is what the Lord requires and desires, right? In Isaiah chapter... That's that's what he desires, and that's Ezra here as he approaches him. Look, he says, for our iniquities are our sin. Curiously, Ezra hadn't sinned, but he's praying on behalf of all the people. Our iniquities (coughs) have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that those who don't trust Jesus Christ, you know what's happening? It's like they're, it says he's, they're actually storing up wrath by rejecting. I think it's in, in chapter 2, verse 5 or verse 15. I didn't have it written down. But they're, they're storing up wrath. And it's like they're taking a rock and adding it to the pile. And taking a rock and adding it to the pile. And one day, guess what? That whole pile of rocks is going to fall on them in God's wrath. And as we're saying, our iniquities, our sin, they just keep piling up and piling up and... Uh, I can't even see the end of him. In fact, he goes on. Remember, Ezra knows history. He goes, from the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands. In other words, Ezra's like, we we were thrown into captivity because of our sin. And we face the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. You know, Ezra recognizes their sin. and you, you, Do you recognize your own sin? That we've all sinned and fallen short? I don't know about you, but sometimes you read the Bible and you see people like this and you go, man, they had seen God do so much for them. They had seen him do so much. How in the world would they turn from him? Why, why wouldn't they believe? Like some of them actually, they heard God's voice. And if you, if, I don't know, I feel like if I heard God's voice like audibly speak to me, okay, yeah, that'd be a clue. I'd, I'd obey. No problem. That, that would do it for me. I'd be done. But you know what? We're the same way. You've got a whole book. In fact, you've got multiple translations in your pocket now of God speaking to you. Telling you his truth. And yet what do we do? We, we just ignore it. We're just like them. Don't ever ask uh, when you see people and they do stuff like this. How could they do that without also asking how do I do that? How do I do that? Because we do. We do. In the same way, don't look at other people who are struggling with sin, Jesus says, and proudly ignore your own sin. Don't, don't point out the, 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 the speck in their eye without first looking for the plank in your own. 
And Paul tells us when we confront sin, be careful lest you fall into the same temptation. We're all messed up. Our iniquities are piling higher and higher and higher all the time. Verse 8. But now, Ezra says, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. That word favor is the same word as grace. Uh, it's, It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's just God's favor. To leave us a remnant... And to give us a secure hold within his holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. So Ezra confesses sin and he's like, but but God, your grace, your grace. You've saved a remnant. I mean, you see a few ways of his grace in this verse, in verse 8. There's a remnant left, people who are faithful. God is always doing that. He's always keeping a faithful remnant. He's doing it. He says, you've, uh, you've brightened our eyes. You've, or your translation might say, you're, uh, you're, you, you've, you've given new light to our eyes. That's this idea of new life, of being restored, of being renewed. God's revealed his goodness to you. He says, uh, we, you've, been, you've given us a firm hold in your holy place. Your translation might actually say, uh, there's a, how does it say it? Um, You've given us either a peg in the holy place or a nail in the holy place. You know what that idea is? Do you remember the tabernacle? The tabernacle, like the temple, would have been uh, pulled tight and nailed down into the ground. And uh, so it wouldn't move. And and it was was symbolic of part of God's rooting himself among his people. And Ezra's like, you've given us a firm ground, a peg, a a place, a nail in your temple where, where we won't be moved. That's your grace. He says, um, uh, you've granted us a little reviving in our slavery. You've made us new, Lord. You're at work. And he goes on, verse 9, for we are slaves. We're slaves. See, even though they're released from captivity, whose authority uh, on this earth were they under? The king of Persia. (laughs) They were still ultimately his slaves. Yet... (laughs) Our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. And many still were slaves back in Persia. But instead, he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving. There it is again. To set up the house of our God. To repair its ruins. To give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. What a testament of God's faithfulness to them. Even while they were slaves, he had not forgotten them, but had blessed them. He's like, you've been so good to us, Lord. If, he, if Ezra had the New Testament, he might have quoted uh, Romans chapter 5. Even while we were still your enemies, Jesus, you died on the cross for us. You'd think they would celebrate and obey and rejoice in light of that grace, but much like you and I, they're sinful and their hearts quickly forgot what God had done for them. Ezra keeps praying. He says, and now, oh our God, what shall we say after this? And he's saying, even in light of all your goodness, for we have forsaken your commandments. What else can they say? We've sinned. No excuses, no explanations. We've sinned. We've forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. 
Therefore, don't give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. And never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Ezra is actually quoting a handful of different texts from the Torah in Exodus and Deuteronomy there. And God's reason for not wanting them to to intermarry is, again, so their hearts wouldn't be drawn from him. He's a jealous God. The reason he doesn't want us to get become of the world is so that our hearts aren't drawn from Jesus. It's not about yours, but mine is easily drawn. Sadly. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds, Ezra goes on praying, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. What a profound statement of God's grace and his mercy. Do you see that? Oh God, you've punished us less than our iniquities deserved and you've given us a remnant such as this. He's saying you didn't give us what we deserved and you gave us what we didn't deserve. That's his grace and his mercy. I've told you grace and mercy from the Lord are really two sides of the same coin, right? Grace is when I get what I don't deserve. It's when I get what I don't deserve. What do you, what do you get because of the Lord's grace? Uh, well, if you trust Jesus Christ, you get brand new life. You're brand new. You're redeemed. You're restored. Not new life later, new life now. And not only this, there's, there's pieces not just in grace that God gives you things you don't deserve. Your, your sin is no longer counted against you. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. You get Jesus' righteousness. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But he also doesn't give me what I do deserve. That's mercy. It's the other side of the coin. Mercy is when I don't get uh, uh, what I do deserve. Because what do I deserve? I deserve God's wrath. I deserve Josh Weiland's a sinner and he deserves to spend eternity in hell paying the penalty for my sin. And the torment of the smoke because of my sin should go up on me forever and forever, the Lord says in Revelation. But guess what? Because of God's mercy in Jesus Christ, I don't get what I deserve. I don't get what I deserve. Jesus takes it all. And his grace and his mercy are two sides of the same coin. It's getting what I don't deserve and not getting what I do. And Ezra is saying that. He said, you've punished us less than we deserved and you've given us more than we deserve. So he goes on, verse 14. Shall we then break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant? nor any, any to escape. Ezra's basically saying, Lord, what were we thinking? What are we thinking? That's true repentance. It's, it's saying, Lord, what am I thinking? Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. And behold, before you in our guilt, for none of us can stand before you because of this. Uh, this is the gospel, loved ones. Ezra says, Lord, you are just. In other words, you know how the gospel starts? And you know how receiving God's grace and mercy starts? It starts by saying, Lord, you're right. (laughs) You're right. You are just. Your ways are righteous. You know what's best. And then it it goes on to say, "And, and I'm before you in my guilt. I'm guilty. I've sinned. I deserve nothing but your wrath. It's recognizing Jesus is right and that I'm wrong. 
and, and not with any qualifications, <laughs> right? In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says, The law reveals our sin and it shuts our mouths. You ever try to make an excuse? Yeah, but, 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 um, and, and when we, we see God's word and it shows us our sin, it, it's like, just, just be quiet. There's no excuse. And none of us can stand before you because of this. I deserve the Lord's wrath. See, Paul writes it this way. He says, for all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. They fall short. You never make it. I can remember being young and thinking, uh, and you hear the story all the time, still today in our culture from people who've lived their entire lives and even have studied God's word. And they say, at the end of my life, you know, I think God will outweigh the good and the bad. And, and I think the good will outweigh the bad and then I'll make it. That's how I'll get to heaven. Like that's how, that's how I'll be saved and avoid God's wrath, right? But here's the problem. That's like a long jumper thinking he can jump the Grand Canyon because there's this great chasm between you and God and it's your sin. And no matter how hard you train to run and jump across that chasm, uh, you, you could be the greatest long jumper in the world and take off at the end of the edge of the Grand Canyon and you would make it less than 1% across, less than 0.1% across. <laughs> and whew, like, the, like coyote. I mean, that's you. That's me. We fall short of God's glory. We fall short. All of our good works, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. He goes on in chapter 6, Paul does. He says, and the wages of sin is death. That type of fall yields death, loved ones. Eternal death. Separation from God's grace and uh, full engagement with his wrath. But chapter 6, verse 23 has a big but in it. But the free gift of God is eternal life. And where is it? It's in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ. And it's a free gift. Guess who earns it? Not you. If you earn it, it's not a gift. It's given to you by Jesus. It's a free gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes and and he he builds off of, you know, for all have sinned in chapter 3. Paul tells the gospel over and over in Romans. In chapter 3, verse 24, he says, "And, And all are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. That just means, I think of it like this, propitiation. He took the punishment for me. He took the punch of God's wrath in his blood on the cross that I deserve so that I could receive that by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, not mine. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, Paul's saying it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. If you want to receive his grace and mercy, guess what? Today, Paul writes, is the day of salvation. And today you can receive it freely by grace through faith. Free. You're like, but what do I have to do? Believe. Yeah, but what do I have to do? Repent. What what, what, what do I have to do? Receive it. You can't do anything to earn it. And you can't do anything to lose it. Because you didn't do anything to earn it. See, as we head now into Ezra chapter 10, we're going to see that God's grace, his goodness, his kindness is what leads us to repentance. God's grace leads us to repentance, loved ones, his goodness, his kindness. So what's repentance? What is repentance? I can tell you a few things that it's not. 
Repentance is not uh, feeling sorry. That's not repentance. Turning to Jesus in faith, repentance is not just feeling sorry, like, oh, I'm so sorry that I did that. I feel bad. No, that's not enough. That's not enough. Um, It's also not remorse. It's not just remorse, which is similar to sorrow, right? Remorse is a negative thing, but really repentance is a positive thing. Remorse, uh, uh, Judah, Judas was remorseful, the, the text tells us. He was remorseful about his sin. He, he couldn't believe that he had done that. But repentance isn't remorseful. It's, it's not negative. It's actually positive. So here's a few observations of what repentance is. Number one, uh, true repentance. Now, you're t- saying, but yeah, but shouldn't I feel remorse or, or for my sin? Well, yeah, you should feel deep contrition. It involves deep contrition for my sin. Isaiah tells us that a contrite heart, a humble heart, the Lord will not despise, right? You want to know what you can give to him? And to, to, what you can give to him in this exchange, give him your sin. Give him your sin. Be contrite. Deep contrition. It also not only includes deep contrition, uh, it involves a change in direction. See, that's, ultimately, that's what the word repent means. It means a change of mind. Metanoia is the Greek word. It means to change my mind. That I, I used to think this was cool and this was good, but you know what? I changed my mind because this is what God says is right. And it's turning from going this way and going the other way. You know, it's like the kid in junior high in the basketball game. He gets the ball and he starts going to the wrong basket and everybody's going, stop, stop, turn around. That's repent. That's what, that's what the preacher's yelling. Repent, turn around. You're going the wrong way. Turn back. Repentance means a change in direction. See, it's beyond just sorrow and remorse. It's actually change happens in your life. And that change doesn't earn your salvation, but it's a result of it. Does that make sense? God changes you. And finally, the last observation about repentance, it's, it's deep contrition. It's, um, it's a change in direction. And it's a daily exercise. Martin Luther says that the whole life of the Christian is one of daily repentance. Because I don't know about you, but even though I turn, I tend to start peeking back over my shoulder. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm going back that direction again. You ever do that? But if I really know Jesus, what's going to happen? I'm going to repent again daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes by the minute. Repentance, loved ones. It's a biblical word, turning to Jesus, and it's all because of his grace. Here, we're going to see some repentance now here in Ezra, but it still ends on a bit of a sorrow note. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. And the people wept bitterly. There's, there you go. There's, there's that deep contrition. And Shechaniah, it's a fun name, isn't it? You can say it. Say it. Shechaniah. There, you're with me. Good. Shechaniah. There's a couple Shechaniahs in the Bible, and we're not sure exactly which one this, this guy is. This might be a totally different one from some of the others that show up in the text. But he's the son of uh, Jehiel, the sons of Elam. And he addresses Ezra. He's some kind of leader among the people. He goes, uh, we've broken faith with our God. We've married foreign women from the peoples of the land. They're confessing their sin. They're like, Lord, here's what I did. It was wrong. But even now, he says, there's hope for Israel in spite of all this. See, when you come to the point of repentance and of that deep contrition, 
there's a certain sense of hopelessness that you get to. And you say, I don't, there's no hope for me. There's no hope. But suddenly when you confess that to the Lord and you start to turn, you go, wait a second. There is hope and it's not in me. It's in Jesus. See, even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Shekinah gives them a plan of how we're going to deal with, how they're going to deal with their sin. There's still hope if they repent. He said, therefore, uh, let's make a covenant, another co- a new covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children. In other words, to, to put away our sin. According to the counsel of my Lord, according, Ezra, to what you've taught us, and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Let's, let's not just believe God's word, but let's act on it, is what he's saying. Let's be faithful. Now, if you read that, it says uh, to put away all these wives and children. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But ultimately, that's what, uh, in, in the marriage reforms that Ezra is going to introduce, that's what he calls them to do. See, because here's the deal. Many of these men who had married foreign women, in doing that, they divorced their original wife to do it. Do you know how I know that? It's in Micah chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. They abandoned the wife of their youth to marry these former women, or foreign women, excuse me. And so to put them away means to turn back, (laughs) to turn back. He failed. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole teaching on the New Testament of divorce and what that means. If you've been divorced and you've been remarried, um, God's grace covers sin and brings renewal and restoration. And every case is a little bit different. But in this case, the, the right response was to, to be done, right? So do you hear, do you hear that? Because I, I know there's, there's many of us who are affected that way in our church. And I don't want you to hear this and go... Oh man, what? I mean, I want you to feel the, the weight of God's of the sin in your life and the work of the Holy Spirit in it. But I'm not I'm not prescribing this as a prescription for every situation. Does that make sense? If you want to know more about that, I'm glad to talk with you about it. We can explore what Jesus says about marriage and divorce. So then Shechaniah goes on. He says to Ezra, "This is this is a great verse too. It gives Ezra great courage." He says, "Arise." It's your task. Uh, you're, you're the one, Ezra, who needs to lead this, but we're with you. So be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and he made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. We don't know who that is either, other than he's some kind of servant and had a place for Ezra to stay where Ezra spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Ezra continues to mourn and to fast and to pray. And a proclamation then was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. So a big congregational meeting's called. And if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, oh, check this out. Imagine if, if we put this proclamation out for the next annual meeting. And said, hey, if you don't come, here's what's going to happen. Um, uh, all of your property will be forfeited, and you're going to be banned from the church. <laughs> well, you're like, how does he get away with that? Well, do you remember when Ezra was sent back? 
The king said to him, Ezra chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, he said, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that's in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him. Whether So the king gives Ezra uh, this, this responsibility, whether for death, for banishment, for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. Ezra was to go back, teach the word, and have the people obey it. So then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth day of the month, which would have been uh, in December, our December, uh, midwinter, rainy season, cold. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. (laughs) You ever been out in a really, I mean, it can be like middle of summer, right? And cold, heavy rain, and you're just shivering. <laughs> so that's the picture of these people in the heavy rain, shivering not only because of the rain and the cold, but because of their sin. And they had to imagine, uh, well, God's sending this cold rain, what else is he sending next? <laughs> and Ezra the priest stood up and he said to them, you've broken faith, you've married foreign women, and you increased the guilt of Israel. Ouch. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. See, loved ones, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, I don't care how vile it is. John tells us if, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful, even while we're faithless, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, You are not outside the reach of God's grace yet. Because there will come a day when his grace runs dry and he brings judgment. Today is the day of salvation. Today is. He said, separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do what you have said. So they agree. They were, they're, they're beginning this process of repentance. But then they say, but the people are many, and they were, uh, th- tens of thousands of them, and, and it's a time of heavy rain. We can't stand in the open. We're freezing. <laughs> Nor is this a task for one day or two. This is going to take a long time. For we've greatly sinned, greatly transgressed in this matter. So let our officials stand for the whole assembly And long story short, what happens here is they go on. (coughs) Ezra selects men, verse 16, heads of fathers' houses, according to the fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. And over time, over the course of about three months, they start investigating all the marriages. And, um, okay, and they investigate the whole congregation. Can you imagine being in that group? Especially if you knew you had sinned and you're just waiting for the knock on the door. Repent. And this investigation takes place, and after three months, they they conclude it, and uh, you get to the end of Ezra chapter 10, verse 44. Uh, From verses 20 through 43, there's a whole list of of men who had sinned in this way. By the way, Shechaniah, it turns out that his father and a bunch of his uncles had actually married former women. They're listed in this list. I keep saying former, foreign, you know what I'm saying, right? All these, though it says, here's how Ezra ends. All these had married foreign women 
And some of the women had even borne children. Ezra ends on a pretty down note. Now, uh, you fast forward another 25, 30 years in the book of Nehemiah, and you find out the people had repented, which is a great thing, but it happened again. And uh, we won't go into all that now, but it's a pretty sobering end to the story, isn't it? How does this relate to heroic faith? Well, you know what heroic faith does? It steps out and it says, you know what? I've sinned, but God, you're greater than my sin. And I turn to you, I repent, and I trust you to make me clean. To walk in your ways and not to depart from them. So I don't know uh, what's going on in your life or where you're at. But we all have things we need to repent of. Will you repent and turn and follow the Lord? I think the blessing on your family, on our church, may be dependent upon it. Sobering message today, huh? But don't forget, just like Shechaniah said, even in the midst of our great guilt, there is amazing hope. And it's in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. Lord, uh, we are sinful. I'm sinful. We turn from you over and over and over again. Walking down the same paths oftentimes. And um, Lord, you call us to repent. Not because um, you have some nefarious plan for us, but because you know that's what, what's best for us. Might you help us to do that? Might you work in our hearts today, Lord, and in the hearts of those who hear my voice, including my own, to repent, to turn back to you? Jesus, I pray for those who've never turned to you to begin with. Might today be the day that they recognize their sin and turn their their life, Jesus, to you. But may we be a people of repentance, seeking you and loving you and living in your grace and mercy. Thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.